Welcome to Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1. We are continuing to read at page 91, um, Lecture 6. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival's Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thought of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read, renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1 which we hope you find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Lecture 6. Verse 12. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. When the prophet saw that he had to do with besotted men, almost void of all reason, he turned to address the heavens, and it is a way of speaking common in the prophets that they address the heaven and the earth, which have no understanding, and leave men endued with reason and knowledge. This they were wont to do in in hopeless cases, when they found no disposition to learn. Hence now the prophet bids the heavens to be astonished, and to be terrified, and to be reduced, as it were, unto desolation, as though he had said, This is a wonder which almost confounds the whole order of nature. It is the same as though we were to see heaven and earth mixed together. We now then perceive the meaning of the prophet, for by this representation he intended to show how detestable was the impiety of the people, since the heavens, though destitute of reason, ought justly to dread such a monstrous thing. As to the words, some render them, Be desolate, ye heavens, and then repeat the same. But as Shemem means to be astonished, the rendering I have given suits the present passage better, be astonished ye heavens for this. And then, be ye terrified and dried up, for Shareb signifies to become dry and sometimes to be reduced to a, sol- to a solitude or a waste. Footnote. Blaney, following the Septuagint, renders the verbs as in the third person plural. The heavens are astonished, but it is better to take them as being in the second person in an imperative mood, as both Aquila and Symmachus do. Similar passages are so construed. See Isaiah 1-2. There is alliteration in the two first words, as though we said in our language, Heave ye heavens. And there is a gradation in the expressions, be, ha- be astonished, be horrified, be wholly wasted, or consumed, or dried up. Astonished be ye the heavens for this, and be horrified, 
Be ye wholly wasted, saith Jehovah. The alteration is the, in the last verb in accordance with the Syriac, which means to tremble, instead of non-English word. Though proposed by Secker and approved by Horsley, is by no means necessary and countenanced by no MSS. Nor is the amendation of Blaney in conformity with the Septuagint to be at all approved. These alterations are not only unnecessary, but destroy the expressive and striking character <coughs> of the passage. Learned men are sometimes led too much by an innovating spirit. Editor. End footnote. <coughs> it afterwards follows, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If a reason is given here why the prophet had bidden the heavens to be astonished and terrified, then we must render the words thus, For two evils have my people done. But I rather think that the preceding verse is connected with the former verses. The prophet had said, Go to the farthest lands and see what, whether any nation has changed its gods while yet they were their mere inventions. I think then the subject is closed with the exclamation in the preceding verse when the prophet says, Be astonished, ye heavens. It then follows, Surely two, peoples have my pe surely two evils have my people done. Even these, they have forsaken me, and then they sought for themselves false gods. When any one forsakes an old friend and connects himself with a new one, it is an iniquitous and a base conduct. But, the, but, when there is, but when there is no compensation, there is in it united together folly, levity, and madness. If I despise what I know to be profitable to me and embrace what I understand will be to my hurt, does not such a choice prove madness? This, then, is what the prophet now means when he says that the people had sinned not only by departing from the true God, but also by going over without any compensation unto idols which could confer no good on them. He says that they had done two evils. The first was they had forsaken God, and the other they had fallen away unto false and imaginary gods. But the more to amplify their sin, he makes use of a similitude and says that God is a fountain of living, living waters, and he compares idols to perforated or broken cisterns which hold no water. Footnote. Blaney innovated here because he seemed not rightly to distinguish between the two words that are here used. Both are rendered cisterns in our version, but they are two distinct words, though they are similar and mean similar or the same things. The first is non-English word, pits and the other is non-English word in our received text, but ought evidently to be non-English word, or as in, the, as in one MS, non-English word, which means wells or pools. The first is a feminine noun, the last is a masculine noun, and hence we find that the adjective added here to the last word is masculine, as in other places. See Deuteronomy 6.2, 2 Second Chronicles 27.10. Nehemiah 9.25 While the first is accompanied with adjectives in the feminine gender, the verse may be thus rendered. 
For two evils have my people done. Me have they forsaken, the fountain of living waters, in order to dig for themselves pits, broken wells, which cannot hold water. It is singular that Adam Clark should say that these cisterns were vessels ill put together, since there were pits dug in the ground to receive rainwater. Editor. End footnote. When one leaves a living fountain and seeks a cistern, it is proof of great folly, for cisterns are dry except water comes elsewhere, but a fountain has its own spring. I'm sorry. For cisterns are dry except water comes elsewhere, but a fountain has its own spring, and further, where there is a vein perpetually flowing and a perennial stream of waters, the water is more salubrious and much better. The water which rains brings into cisterns are never so wholesome as those which flow from their own native vein, and when the very receptacles of water are full of chinks, what must they be but empty? Hence, then, God charges the people with madness, because he was forsaken, who was a fountain, and a fountain of living waters, and further, because the people sought unprofitable things when they went after their idols. For what is it to be found in idols? Some likeness, for the superstitious think that they labor not in vain when they worship false gods, and they hope to derive some benefit. There are then some resemblances to the true in false religions, and hence the prophet compares false gods to wells, because they were made hollow, suitable to hold water, but there was not a drop of water in them, as they were broken cisterns. We now perceive what the prophet meant, that we cannot possibly be free from guilt when we leave the only true God, as in him is found for us a fullness of all blessings, and from him we may draw what may fully satisfy us. When therefore we despise the bounty of God, which is sufficient to make us happy in every way, how great must be our ingratitude and wickedness. Yet God remains ever like himself, as then he has called himself the fountain of living waters. We shall at this day find him to be so, except he is prevented by our wickedness and neglect. But the prophet adds another crime. For when we fall away from God, our own conceits deceive us, and whatever may appear to us at the first view to be wells or fountains, yet when thirst shall come, we shall not find a drop of water in all our devices, they being nothing else but dry cavities. It follows. Verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burnt without inhabitant. Also the children of Noph and Tahapanes have broken the crown of thy head. Hast thou not procured this unto them thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, when he led thee by the way? These verses are to be read together. For the prophet first shows that Israel was not as to his original condition miserable, but that this happened through a new cause. And then he mentions the cause. He then first asks whether Israel was a servant or a slave. God had adopted them as his people and had promised to be so bountiful to them as to render them in every way happy. And what was more, as a proof of their happiness, he said, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Genesis 12.3 12, 22.18 26.4 28.14 
We then see what was the original condition of Israel. They excelled all other nations because they were God's peculiar people. They were his heritage. They were a royal priesthood. Hence the prophet, as though astonished at something new and strange, asks this question. Is Israel a servant? He was free beyond all nations, for he was the firstborn son of God. It was therefore necessary to inquire for the cause why he was so miserable. For he says afterwards that lions roared against him and sent forth their voice. He says that their cities were burnt or destroyed. He says that their land was reduced to desolation. And at length he adds, Hast not this done these things to thee? This again is put as a question, but it is doubly affirmative, for it takes away every doubt. What, what do you say is the cause why you are so miserable? For all are hostile to you, and you are exposed to the wrongs of all. Whence can you say has all of this proceeded except from your own wickedness? We now see what the prophet means. But that what he says may be more clear, we must remember that he reminds the people, by way of reproach, of the benefits which God had conferred on them. As then the children of Abraham had been honored with so many irregular favors that they had the preeminence over all the, over all the world, this dignity is now referred to, but only for the purpose of exposing their base conduct, as though he had said, God did not deceive you when he promised to be bountiful to you. His adoption is not deceptive nor in vain. Hence, you would have been happier than all other nations had not your own wickedness rendered you miserable. We now see for what end the prophet asked, Is Israel a servant or a slave? They are indeed on an equality with other people, as they were by nature. But as they had been chosen by God, and as he had favored them with that peculiar privilege, the prophet asks whether they were servants, as though he had said, What is it that prevents that blessedness to appear among you, which God had promised? For it was not God's design to disappoint you. It then follows that you are miserable through your own fault. Verse one, uh, I'm sorry, footnote. The difficulty of understanding this passage has arisen from not considering the questions in a negative sense, as implying a strong denial. Is Israel a servant or rather a slave? No, by no means. Is he one begotten in the house, that is, in a state of bondage? No, by no means. Then the following question comes naturally, since he is neither a purchased slave nor a slave born in the house. Why has he become a prey? That there were two sorts of slaves of this kind is evident from many parts of scripture. See Genesis 17:12, 23, 27, Exodus 21:4, Leviticus 22:11. This is the view taken evidently in our in our version. Uh, Blaney renders the two first lines thus: Is Israel a slave, or if a child of the household, wherefore is he exposed to spoil? He considers the child of the household to be the son and the heir as Isaac was, and refers to Galatians 4.7. Horsley coincides with him, but the usus loquendi gives no countenance to this view, while it confirms the other. To refer to non-English word in Latin is to no purpose. The child of the house, as the expression literally is, and similar phrases, ever mean in scripture those who were born slaves in a family. Editor. End footnote.
And by saying, why is he become a prey, he intimates that except Israel had been deprived of God's protection, they would not have been thus exposed to the caprice of their enemies. They were not then become a prey except for this reason, because God had forsaken them according to what is said in the Song of Moses. How should one chase a thousand and ten to put to flight as many thousands, except God had given us up as captives, except we had been shut up by his hand? Deuteronomy 32.30 For Moses in that passage does also in an indirect manner remind the people how often and how wonderfully God had given them victories over their enemies, and thus he leaves it to their posterity when in distress to consider how the change came that one should chase a thousand, that is, how could it be that they, possessing great forces, should yet be put to flight by their enemies? For they were not wont to turn their backs, but to conquer their enemies. It then follows that they were made captives by God, and not by the men who chased them. So also here the prophet shows that Israel would not have become a prey had they not been deprived of God's assistance. He afterwards adds, Over him roared the lions. The prophet seems not simply to compare the enemies of Israel to lions on account of their cruelty, but also by way of contempt, as though he had said that Israel found that not only men were incensed against them, but also wild beasts, and it is more degrading when God permits us to be torn by the beasts of the field. It is then the same as though he had said that Israel were so miserably treated that they were not only slain by the hands of enemies, but were also exposed to the beasts of prey. And then he adds, they have sent forth their voice, which is the same as to say that Israel, whom God was wont to protect by his powerful hand, were become the food of wild beasts, and that lions, as, as it were in troops, were roaring against them. He then adds, without a metaphor, that his land was laid waste, and his cities burnt without an inhabitant. This language cannot be suitably applied to lions or to any other wild beasts. But what he had figuratively said before, he now explains in a plain manner, and says that the land was desolate, that the cities were cut off or burnt up. Now this, as we have said, could not have been the case had not Israel departed from God, and had been on this account deprived of his help. Footnote. The verse literally is as follows. Over him shall young lions roar. They have uttered their voice and have made his land a waste. His cities are grown over with grass, without an inhabitant. The verb in the first line is future. The other verbs in the, are in the past tense. And Blaney thinks that they are so put to denote the certainty of what is said, as it is often done by the prophets. And this is rendered probable by what is contained in chapter 4-7, where the same judgment is spoken of. The verb, non-English word, in the received text ought evidently to be non-English word, according to the carry and 20 MSS. And so we find it in chapter 9, 10. Our version and Calvin gave it the same idea of burning. I'm sorry, and Calvin gave it the idea of burning. But according to Lee and Parkhurst, its meaning is to shoot forth, to produce grass, or to grow over with grass, as the case is with ruined cities, and the words connected with it here and in other places seem to, do, to favor this meaning. <clears throat> it is rendered in our version laid waste in chapter 4-7 and desolate in editor and footnote.
By way of amplification, he adds, also the sons of Noph and of Tephanes shall for thee break the head or the crown of the head. We shall hereafter see that the Israelites were wont to seek help from the Egyptians. The particle gam may be thus explained, not only those who have been hitherto professed enemies to thee, but even thy friends, in whose help thou didst confide, shall turn their power against thee and break for thee thy head. Some think that their degradation is here enhanced because the Egyptians were an unwarlike people, and ancient historians say that men there followed the occupations of women. But as this is not mentioned in scripture, and as the Egyptians are not thus spoken of in it, I prefer to follow the usual explanation, that the Egyptians, though confederate with Israel, would yet to be adverse to him, and had been so already. By the head, some understood the chief men among the people of Israel. But we may render it thus. They will break for thee the head, as we say in our language, ils te romperont la tête, or ils te frotteront la tête. And this, in my judgment, is the real meaning. Footnote. There have been many expositions of this latter clause, which may be seen in the Assembly's annotations, which were written as to Isaiah and Jeremiah by the learned Gadiker. He gives the preference to the idea that the crown of the head means the best and the principal part of the land, and to break the crown means the plunder of this portion. See Isaiah 28.4. This seems to correspond in meaning with the previous verse. It was the opinion of Blaney that an illusion is, is prophetically made to the slaying of Josiah by the Egyptians. The words literally are, they shall break thee the crown of the head. The crown of the head seems to be explanatory of thee. It might then be rendered, They shall break thee even the crown of thy head. The Septuagint mistook one letter for another and took the verb to be non-English word, They knew thee, instead of non-English word, They shall break thee. But what they made the last word to be, it is hard to know, for they rendered it and searched thee. The Vulgate has followed the Septuagint, and the idea is a very indecent one, and there is nothing in the context to favor it. The Targum's paraphrase is this, They shall slay thy brave men and plunder thy riches, which countenances the idea evidently conveyed by the figurative terms of the Hebrew. The next verse literally rendered is as follows, Is not this what thou wilt do for thyself? by thy forsaking of Jehovah thy God at the time he was leading thee in the way? The first verb is no doubt future, whether it be rendered in the second or third person. The sentence may be rendered in Welsh without, I, without is or the relative what and word for word non-English words. And the future is understood as the present. Blaney's version is Shall not this be done unto thee, because thou hast forsaken Jehovah thy God at the time that he led thee in the way? Editor. End footnote. Now follows the cause. The prophet, after having shown that Israel were forsaken by God, now mentions the reason why it so happened. Has not this done it for thee? Some read in the second person, Hast thou not done this for thee? But the meaning is still nearly the same. More probable, however, is the rendering which others have given, 
has not this happened to thee because thou hast forsaken Jehovah thy God? Jeremiah, in short, teaches us that the cause of all the evils was the defection of the people as though he had said, Thou hast concocted for thyself all this evil, then must thou swallow it, and know that the blame cannot be cast on God, for he would have been faithful to thee, except thine impiety had prevented him. God has not indeed chosen thee in vain, nor has he in vain preferred thee to other nations, but thou hast rejected his kindness. Thy condition, then, would have never been as it is, hast thou not procured thine own ruin. How so? Because thou hast part- departed from thy God. And he further exaggerates this sin by saying, at the time when he led thee in the way. To lead in the way is rightly to govern, so as to make people happy. The prophet then shows that the, people perf- the people's perfidy and defection were without re- without excuse in rejecting the worship of their God, for they were happy during the time they served him. Had they been in various ways tempted or tried, they might have feigned some pretense. We thought ourselves deceived in hoping in the true God, for he has concealed his favor from us. We were therefore compelled by necessity. There ought at least some indulgence to be shown to our levity, for we could have formed no other conjecture but that God has had removed far from us. The prophet meets this objection as he does in the fifth verse. What iniquity have your fathers found in me? And is, as it is done in another place, my people, what have I done to thee? Or in what have I been troublesome to thee? Micah 6, four. For God in that passage shows that he was prepared to defend his own cause and to clear himself from whatever the people might object to him. So also he does in this place. I have led thee, he says, in the way. That is, thou didst live happily under my government, and yet I could not retain thee by my goodness while I kindly treated thee, and thou knowest that nothing could be better for thee than to continue under my protection. But thou hast determined to go over into the service of idols. Now what excuse hast thou, or what pretense is left thee? We hence see that the sin of the people is greatly enhanced, for they were induced by no temptation or trial to forsake God, but through more perfidy gave themselves up to idols. I'm sorry, through mere perfidy gave themselves up to idols. And a confirmation of this verse follows. Verse 18. And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt? To drink the waters of Sihor? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria? To drink the waters of the river? As I have just stated, the prophet confirms what I said, that the people could not ascribe the cause of their evils to others, for they ought to have imputed to themselves whatever they suffered. And at the time their sin was doubled, because they looked here and there for vain remedies, and thus accumulated for themselves new causes of misery, for they ought to have acknowledged no other remedy for their evils except reconciliation with God. If, for instance... Anyone being ill knew the cause of his disease, and instead of adopting the true remedy, had recourse to some vain expedients injurious to his recovery. Is he not deemed worthy to die for having willfully despised what might have healed him, and for indulging himself in what is deceptive and fallacious? The same thing does Jeremiah now reprove in the people of Israel. If you carefully inquire, saith God, how it is that you are so miserable, you will find that this cannot be ascribed to me, but to your own sins. 
Now then, what ought you to have done? What remedy ought you to have sought except to reconcile yourselves to me, to seek pardon from me, and to strive to correct your wickedness? I would then have immediately healed you, and had you come to me, you would have found me the best physician. And why do you now act in a way quite contrary? For you run after vain helps. Now you flee to Egypt, then you flee to Assyria, but you will gain nothing by these expedients. We now understand the object of the prophet. For after having proved the people to be guilty of impiety and shown that the evils which they suffered could be ascribed neither to God nor to chance nor to any such causes, he now shows to them that the one true remedy was to return into, into favor with God, but that it was an evidence of extreme madness to run now to Egypt and then to Assyria. Now this reproof is supported by history, for the people had at one time the Assyrians as their enemies, and at another the Egyptians, and the changes were many. God employed different scourges to awaken the sottishness of the people. At one time he whistled for the Egyptians, as we shall presently see. At another he blew the trumpet in Assyria, so that the Israelites might know that they could never be safe without being under the government of God. But all these things being overlooked, such was the blindness of the people, that when they were assailed by the Assyrians, they fled to Egypt and sought aid from the Egyptians and entered into a treaty with them. Afterwards, when a change occurred, they sought a treaty with the Assyrians and also bought it at a high price. This madness is what the prophet now reprobates when he says, What hast thou to do in the way of Egypt? That is, what advantage dost thou, dost thou gain? How great is thy folly, since thou knowest that God is angry with thee and that thou art suffering many evils. God is adverse to thee, and yet thou thinkest nothing of reconciliation. Thy healing would be to flee to God and to be reconciled to him. But what dost, what dost thou now do? Thou fleest to the Assyrians and to the Egyptians. How wretched is thy condition, and how great is thy folly in thus wearying, wearying thyself without any advantage. Now we may learn from this passage that whenever God chastises us for our sins, we ought to seek a remedy and not to rest in those vain comforts which Satan often suggests, for such charms introduce drowsiness and healable diseases are by such means rendered fatal. What then ought we to do? We ought, as soon as we feel the scourges of God, to seek to return into favor with him, and not in vain shall be, effort, shall, and not in vain shall be our effort. But if we look around us in all directions for help, our evil shall not be lessened but increased. To drink the waters of the Nile and to drink the waters of Euphrates is nothing else but to seek aids here and there. He indeed alludes to the legations which had been sent. For they who went to Egypt drank of the waters of the Nile and others of Euphrates. Yet he speaks metaphorically as though he had said, God was ready to help me hadst thou betaken thyself to his mercy as thine asylum. But having neglected the him, thou thoughtest it more advantageous to have such aids as Egypt and Assyria could bring. Thou thus seekest drink in remote countries, while God could give thee waters. And he seems to refer to the similitude which he had shortly before used. He had called God the fountain of living waters, as though he had said, God is to thee a refreshing and perennial fountain, and there would be abundance of waters for thee, wert thou satisfied with him. But thy desire is to drink the waters of the Nile, and the waters of the Euphrates. Footnote. 
No doubt this is the peculiar import of the, of the passage, as though the prophet had said, What good to thee is to travel to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor, a muddy river, as the word imports? And what good to thee is to travel to Assyria to drink the waters of the river, while thou hast at home a fountain of living, pure, and perennial waters? So Gadiker considers the drift of the passage. To drink the water of Nilus in Egypt is put here for to seek help and relief there. But he deliver it in these terms, as he should say that thou could have nothing to do there, or no errand there, unless it were to drink of the puddle of water of that river, when they had, or might have had, as good, yea, far better than that, nearer at hand at home. See chapter 18.4. So Kings, so also Kings 1.3. Then the plainest version would be thus. And now, what hast thou to do with a journey to Egypt, that thou mightest drink, it, drink the waters of Sihor? And what hast thou to do with a journey to Assyria, that thou mightest drink the waters of the river? The comparison evidently is between the waters of Sihor and of the river Euphrates and the living waters. As in other parts of scripture, the Euphrates is no doubt meant by the river, though here... Uh, as in as Isaiah 7.20, the article, non-English word, is not prefixed to it. Editor. End footnote. We now then perceive the meaning of the prophet. He no doubt speaks of the waters of the Nile and of the Euphrates because both these nations abounded apparently in wealth and power and in military forces. As then the people of Israel trusted in such auxiliaries, the prophet here reproves their ingratitude because they were not content with God's help, though that was not so that was not so visible and conspicuous. God indeed had help sufficient for us, and were we content with him alone, no doubt an abundance of good things would to a full satisfaction be given to us, and and as he is not wearied in doing good, he would supply us with whatever is desirable, but as we cannot see his beneficence with carnal eyes, we are therefore carried away after the allurements of the world. We may hence learn that we are not to seek drink either from the Nile or from the Euphrates, that is, from the enticing things of the world, which make a great show and display, but that we are, on the contrary, to drink from the hidden fountain which is concealed from us in order that we may seek it by faith. It now follows. Verse 19. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord, God of hosts. Here again the prophet confirms what I have before stated, that the people would at, at length find, willing or unwilling, what it was to, to depart from God, as though he had said, as thou hast not hitherto learnt by so many evidences that thy perfidy is the cause of all thy evils, God will heap evils on evils that thou mayest at length know, even against thy will, that thou receivest a reward due to thy wickedness. This is the sum of the whole. But he says first, Chastise thee shall thy wickedness, as though he had said that God ascended not his tribunal, nor put forth his hand to punish the people, yet judgment would be evident in their very sins. And this is much more powerful, and has great weight in it, greater weight in it, than if the prophet had said only that God would inflict on the people a just punishment. 
Thy wickedness, he says, shall chastise thee. And a similar mode of speaking is adopted by Isaiah. Stand, he says, against thee shall thy wickedness. Isaiah 3.9 As though God had said, If I were even to be silent, and not to take upon me the office of a judge, and if there were no other accuser, and no one to plead the cause, yet stand against thee will thy wickedness, and fill thee with shame. To the same purpose is said what is said here, Thy wickedness shall chastise thee. Footnote Blaney renders it adversity. That the word sometimes means that is true, but most commonly wickedness, and this is the sense required by the context. It must be that which which corresponds in character with the word that follows, apostasy or turning aside. Wickedness is the meaning sanctioned by all the early versions as well as modern. Editor. End footnote. But we must consider the reason why the prophet said this. There were then, we know, complaints in the mouths of many that God was too rigid and severe. Since then, they thus continually clamored against God. The prophet repels such calamities and says that their wickedness was sufficient to account for the vengeance executed upon them. He says the same of the turnings aside. Footnote. The word is singular in all the early versions. It is rendered apostasy by the Septuagint and turning aside aversio by the Vulgate. Though there is no MS in favor of the singular, yet the verb connected with it in this number. The true reading, no doubt, is according to the versions confirmed as it is by the number of the verb. Editor. End footnote. But what he had said generally before, he now expresses more particularly, that the people had withdrawn themselves from the worship of God and obedience to him. He therefore points out here the kind of wickedness of which they were guilty, as though he had said that they were that there was no need of an accuser, of witnesses, or of a judge, but that the defections of the people alone would sufficiently avail to punish them. He afterwards adds, Thou shalt know and see how wicked and bitter it is to forsake Jehovah thy God. These are words hard in their construction, for we have already explained the meaning. Thy forsaking, or thy defection, means that thou hast forsaken thy God. And my fear was not on or in thee. Here again, the prophet points out as by the finger the sins of the people. He had before spoken of their turnings aside, but he now mentions their defection, that the people had plainly and openly departed from the true God. They indeed ever continued some kind of worship in the temple, but as the whole of religion was corrupted by many superstitions, and as there was no fidelity, no sincerity, as they mingled the worship of idols with that of the true God, they had clearly departed from God, who is jealous of his honor, according to what is in the law, and allows of no rivals. Exodus 25:34-14. We now then perceive the meaning of the prophet. He says, Thou shalt know that it is an evil and bitter thing. This must be applied to punishment. And he repeats what he had said before, that the evils with the people, which the people then suffered did not happen by chance, and that as they were overwhelmed with many bitter sorrows, the cause was not to be sought afar off, for their bitterness and whatever calamities they endured flowed from their impiety. Thou shalt then know by the reward itself Even experience will convince thee what it is to depart from God. And he says, from Jehovah thy God, or as 
or to forsake Jehovah thy God. For if God had not made known his grace to the Israelites, their perverseness would not have been so detestable. But since they had found God to be a father to them, and since he had so bountifully treated them, having been pleased to enter into a covenant with them, their wickedness was inexcusable. And afterwards the person is changed, and my fear was not in thee. Here at length the prophet intimates that they were destitute of every sense of religion, for by the fear of God is meant reverence for his name. Men often fall, we know, through mistake, and are deceived by the craft of Satan. And when made thus miserable, they are to be pitied. But the prophet shows here that the people were wholly undeserving of pardon. How so? Because there was no fear of God in them. You cannot, he says, object and say that you have been deceived or make any pretense by which you may cover your wickedness. It is evident that you acted shamelessly, shamelessly and basely in forsaking thy God, for there was no fear of God in you. Footnote. The verse literally is as follows. Verse 19. Chastise thee shall thy wickedness, and thy apostasy it shall correct thee. Know then, and see. The future is spoken of. They were warned. They were to know and see, or consider that the forsaking of God, the apostasy, would be afflictive and bitter, and then the cause of the wickedness first mentioned is stated, no fear of God. How wickedness was to chastise them and apostasy to correct them is signified. They would turn out to be evil, afflictive, hurtful and bitter, grievous, painfully distressing. Hence Grotius's exposition cannot be right. Thy wickedness shall be a, shall be a proof that thou art justly punished. The reverence is to the very evils and mysteries, miseries to which their wickedness and apostasy would inevitably lead them. Their foreign alliances were eventually the means of their degradation and misery, and in seeking them, they forsook God as their protector, and by adopting idols, they forsook him as the object of their worship. End footnote. He subjoins at last, saith Jehovah by host, of hosts, by which words the prophet secures more authority to which he had announced. For what, we had, what he had said must have been very bitter to the people, and many of them, no doubt, according to their usual manner, shook their heads, for we know how insolent were most of them. Hence the prophet here openly declares that he was not the author of what he had said, but only the proclaimer, that it proceeded from God, and that he had spoken nothing but what God himself had commanded. Prayer Grant, Almighty God, that as thou hast hitherto shown to us so many favors, since the time thou hast been pleased to adopt us as thy people, O grant that we may not forget so great a kindness, nor be led away by the allurements of Satan, nor seek for ourselves inventions, which may at length turn to our ruin, but that we may continue fixed in our obedience to thee, and daily call on thee, and drink of the fullness of thy bounty, and at the same time strive to serve thee from the heart, and to glorify thy name, and thus to prove that we are wholly devoted to thee, according to the great obligations under which thou hast laid us, when it had pleased thee to adopt us in thine only begotten Son. Amen. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival's book.
Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add, A-G-D, in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you'll be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free, re- free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of this message, including the header and, tra- header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.